from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is the podcast version of our webcast, so some of the slides we reference might be missing, but you can find the whole episode on our YouTube channel. This is Malware Zoo with John Strand and your host, me, Sierra. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Sierra. And I'm here with John Strand. He's the owner. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And all right. Well, thank you so much. So I'm kind of excited about today's webcast because it's more of a snapshot in time and what I'm doing uh, right now at Black Hills Information Security and Active Countermeasures. I've been spending a lot of time playing with malware, specifically malware that my testers create. They throw malware over to me, I run it in the lab, and then I do analysis on it, mainly to make Rita a better product. And Rita is our free product that does that type of analysis. So this is Malware Zoo. We're creating a malware analysis sandbox. This particular webcast, as always, is brought to you by Active Countermeasures. A lot of what we do today is driven by Rita, which does the math. I'm going to be demonstrating Rita. I'm going to be running through the results of Rita, throwing Rita up into an Excel spreadsheet. And Active Countermeasures just makes Rita so much easier to use with data visualization. If you have any questions or would like a demo, shoot an email to questions at activecountermeasures.com and we will set something up with you. It's also brought to you by Black Hills Information Security, of course, that we do pen testing. It's also brought to you by SANS 504. Hacker Techniques, Exploits, and Incident Handling, hum humbly referred to as the greatest information security class of all time. Written by uh, Yeah, written by me and Ed Scotus. And also, if you can't attend a SANS conference, check out the on-demand courses. That allows you to take the class remotely at your own pace. And let's jump right in. So whenever I'm talking with my classes and I'm talking with our customers, we're starting to spend more and more time discussing purple teaming. And for those of you that don't know, the idea of purple teaming is you have the red team, that would be offensive people, that would come in and they'll test and they'll exercise the blue team in their ability to detect the red team. And there are some companies that do an amazing job at doing this, uh, in addition to Black Hills Information Security, SpectreOps, does a great job, TrustedSec, just tons of companies that are doing a great job of consulting and actually coming in doing red team tactics to exercise and work with the blue team. But the trick is you don't necessarily need to have a full external third party to come in and exercise the blue team. You can actually do a lot of that work on your own. And that's a great way if you actually are working with firms like VHIS or TrustedSec or SpectreOps or whoever, if you are going to work with firms that do this type of activity, the more that you can do before any of those firms come in, the better off you're going to be. You're going to be cleaning up that signal to noise ratio in your environment. And I like to look at the MITRE attack technique matrix and look at it like the columns from left to right. And they have things like initial access, execution, persistence, privilege escalation, defensive evasion, and so on. And you can go through every single one of those. And I want to just take like a category, a column, and kind of walk through a number of webcasts on how you can actually set up testing for that specific column area. And over here, I'm gonna be focusing on command and control. And I guess data exfiltration as well. We could talk more about that in another webcast as well. But if I enhance and jump in on that, there's a number of ways that adversaries can exfiltrate data and get full command and control within your environment. And I feel like far too organizations actually know how to adequately go about testing that uh, to properly exercise their firewalls, their IDS systems, their intrusion prevention systems, their sandboxing technology. And I wanna talk a little bit about the lab that we have set up. This lab is designed specifically to test our ability to detect these types of things, but the lab that we're talking about and how we set it up, also some use cases that I'll go through, 
will actually be very effective in your organization for testing your capabilities in the MITRE ATT&CK technique matrix to detect this type of command and control leaving your environment. This is a huge blind spot. So if we kind of go down, you have commonly used ports. Attackers love to use the ports like port 80, port 443, port 22, just standard web traffic and then you know SSH traffic, move on to FTP, Telnet and so on. Communication through removable media is tough. Uh, there's some products out there. Milton Security has some USB analysis tools that'll detect some USB data exfiltration. You should check out Milton's tools. But then we have like connection proxy, custom command and control, using cryptographic protocols, data encoding, obfuscation, and domain fronting, which I am going to talk about in this particular webcast. So how do we go about trying to detect that in our organization? We have further on webcasts that we want to cover. For example, sacred cash cow tipping is coming up. So we have, what is that one? It's evasion, it's in here, defensive evasion. So we'll be talking about that. And then we can talk about endpoint analysis, uh, which we'll talk about lateral movement collection and some other things. So those are gonna be other webcasts that come up where we can talk about security approaches for testing this framework. So the overall lab design, whenever you're creating your lab initially, you want to keep it dead simple. You don't have a lot of complexity in the lab to begin with. And the reason why is if you try to create something absolutely perfect, you're going to run into tremendous snafus. There's a couple of quotes and whenever it comes to perfect and good, and uh, one of them was used by Steve Jobs, uh, good or is it perfect is the enemy of good. And his way of saying that was, if we're going to release something like the iPhone, we do not want to just be good, we want something to be perfect. And that's great if you're designing a product and you're insane and you have billions of dollars. However, whenever you're designing a test bed, for actually testing these different techniques and these tactics in an organization. It is really, really important just to sit back and say, how can we get good and, and do like that 80% right up front, making life easy? So the lab is very simple. Uh, we have a number of hosts that are emulated. They all connect out through a firewall or DMZ type infrastructure. And then we are able to siphon the data off Bro and Rita, and then we can do analysis from there. This is the lab that I have set up right here. And uh, right now this particular ESXi instance has 19 machines on it. We have our golden image. We have our Bro uh, system, which I'll be logging into here in a moment. We also have our infected computer system. And my infected computer is right here. Uh, so this is a system right now that's running some malware. Specifically, it's malware that's going to Derek Banks. And I'll talk more about this malware. This malware is using CDN and domain fronting. And I'll talk about what that is and how that works and how we can detect that malware here in just a few moments. But it's pretty cool. And the ability to spin up systems and then replicate systems in, in virtual machines is just so incredibly powerful for trying to do this type of analysis. And this analysis is even more important once you start evaluating security products in your organization. Far too often when we're evaluating security products, we stand up four systems, we install software on those four systems, and we're like, yay, verily it works, that's great. But that doesn't really work very well whenever you're scaling up to maybe 100 or 1,000 or 20,000 nodes, or even 100,000 in some situations, which I hardly recommend ever doing that, and I'll talk about that more here in a second. We also have a network infrastructure associated with this as well. So we have the workstations, the server networks as well. We have the management network. We have direct connection out to the internet and we have the ability to port the traffic over to a bro Rita instance. So this is our lab and this is the system that I run malware on. And I've got a bunch of PowerShell instances up and running. Let me see if I can get this one over here. There we go. And we also have some scripts that are executing and I'll talk about those scripts as well. 
So right now what I'm grabbing, basically this is the same command in both terminals. I just wanna check and make sure that my beacon stays alive. So this is kind of my heartbeat notification that my malware is in fact working properly. And I'm running PowerShell and then I'm running netstat NAOB and that gives me the port. It also gives me the executable name as well. And I'm having it repeat every five seconds. Select string is kind of like grep and I'm doing pattern, just searching for the name beacon which has a pull up right here is the name of the malware. And then context one means I want the line above it. So whenever you run netstat, it's gonna give you the IP address, source, destination, its state, and then right below it, it gives the executable. So I need the main line that has the hit and the line above it. So yeah, I know those people that know how to do this better in PowerShell and that's great, but I use PowerShell as a crutch uh, too often try to augment the way I make existing protocols and existing tools in Windows work. So this is actually a live fire session that we're actually capturing and analyzing data in this lab. And I'll walk through actually taking this, logging into Bro, kicking off the Bro logs to, to a Rita instance, tar gzipping them up, and uh, then doing some analysis. We'll go through those steps. So this is an overview of our lab. Like I said, we have Bro is set up and listening. It's got our IP addresses. And of course, you can just counsel into it. I don't usually use the council this way. More often than not, I actually log in directly to my bro box via SSH. And that's just because trying to run things in ESXi with the little councils is really just an incredible pain. So any questions so far or comments? Are we good to keep going? Timothy said, are there any recommendations on where to get malware to test yes, in labs? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, we, we'll be covering that here in a little bit. Okay. I have a slide on that. For, uh, it's a site that Lenny Zelstra put together. Cool. And then Keith said, it's not a question, but a comment. As a self-proclaimed PowerShell master, my advice is whatever the hell works is good enough. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I, I got to say, I started cringing. Whenever he's like, as a self-professed uh, PowerShell master. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of the overall lab design, but notice that this lab design is really basic. And if at all possible in your organization, you really want to replicate as much as you can for the technology stack in your organization, in your lab. I don't know if I feel warm and fuzzy, Sierra, about people actually doing this type of testing in their real environment. Unless, Why not? Unless you, know, <laughs> unless you know the malware and you create it yourself. Um, it's a, it's, you're playing with fire. You are, you are. But if you're pulling malware down from something like Cobalt Strike or you're pulling malware down from Metasploit, you can be relatively certain that it's not going to just spread across your entire environment. It's like it's like trying to pour milk into cereal and having it start on fire. It's just not gonna happen. Generally, it's always possible, but it's generally not gonna happen. So I already talked about VMware. I got backup screenshots and people like slides. Uh, people like slides. And I'm sitting here looking at it, I'm like, so there's something in here with like user IDs and passwords that someone's going to be like, I know, see your lab, um, but whatever. So we'll go with that. Let's go to the bro system here for just a couple of seconds. So here I'm going to take a tar and I'm going to basically try to pull all of our logs together, right? So I've got all of the different logs set up. Got a bunch here and we have some files that are already uploaded. And I need to move these to the Rita system. And I can do that with SCP. Now you can automate a lot of this, right? So we can just automate it up to systems and just make it really, really, really super easy. So I'll just SCP to my remote system, ask for my password. So now we're sending data up to my Rita system and we've got the bro system and the Rita system separated in this environment. And the reason why is just because of, you know, reasons, I guess. So it seems to be hung for a little bit and that's okay. This council's acting all weird. 
It'll show up over here at our Rita system here in just a few moments. So now I'm in the Rita system and I can go to home, John, type LS, and then I have my logs right here. They're the ones that I just uploaded. And I've already got it there, I've already extracted it to this because I pre-cached a lot of this, right? Because I'm like Julia Child. So I can do tar XVFZ and I can do 2018 and then I do 10, one tar.gzip, extracts all the files and then I can CD into that directory, go in. Then once I'm in that directory, I can do Rita and then I can just do import. I can actually import the, and I'm just gonna call this one, just call it demo like so. So now Rita is taking my bro logs and it's importing them into Rita's database format. And we have a number of logs that we use. We use the connection logs, the DNS logs, the HTTP logs, there's more DNS logs. And then it indexes the log entries and we've got it set up. Now it's logging everything to demo and here a couple seconds, I'll get my prompt back. Then I can do Rita. And if you just run Rita by itself, you can do Rita and you can do analyze and then you can actually put in the database and then demo like that. And now Rita is gonna go through and do the analysis. So if you used Rita in the past, you're like, well, Rita's slow. We got to work on the speed on Rita and it's like four times faster, uh, which is actually really, really, really cool. Nice. Um, so now Rita is pulling that data and I just went through the beginning to the end where we have the bro logs, we load it up into Rita, Rita does the analysis. And I have a number of different databases with different malware specimens that we'll do further analysis on in here in just a couple of seconds. But before we do that, I want to spend a couple of seconds and talk about noise, uh, which is a key point in my life and keeping me sane. So Kent, well, it was actually Kent and Jordan and DRock all worked together, but Kent's got it up on his GitHub page. And what's really, really cool about this script that Kent wrote is every five minutes, I think, it goes to the Alexia top 500 or the top 100, and then it chooses a random website that a normal user would normally go to, and it just opens up Microsoft Edge and serves to that website for a period of time and then closes it. So if we actually go to that uh, particular GitHub, really, really, really like this. Uh, I think they just did a great job of it. So here's the Alexia and it's getting a random URL off of Alexia. And then it's basically opening up a URL and launching Internet Explorer and then invoking Internet Explorer and then surfing to that particular website. Um, this is a really nice small script and you all can go and download it. And if you find ways to make it better, just, just put in a pull request and uh, make it better, which we're always really cool with. But the neat thing about it is basically in our environment, these machines are basically replicating what a standard user would do. So they're constantly surfing to the internet and they're constantly going to a whole bunch of different random sites. And what's so important is anytime you're testing any type of security product, network intrusion detection and intrusion prevention system, anything that's on the network that's monitoring network traffic, you need to be generating that white noise in addition to the malware so that you can start to learn and differentiate between what is something that really doesn't look normal and what is something that does look normal. And I'll talk about that here in a few moments whenever we're doing analysis on a couple of different backdoors, but that white noise is key. And I think in our lab right now, we have like 19 systems in this particular node, but I find that to be a good base level for testing. It'd be nice if you could get it up to a thousand or 10,000 computer systems, that would be ultimately the better way to do it. But to actually have it be a lab that's useful, yeah, you can run you know, six, 19, 16, 19 systems on some pretty cheap hardware fairly easily.
So that works out really well. Got a question. And Frank says, what if PowerShell is entirely disabled and logged for on the target machines? Oh, well, on the target machines in that situation, I, I, what I would do is create an exception, because remember, this is a test lab, and you know that PowerShell is something that's going to be disabled, that's great. Just enable it for that specific script or enable it on those test lab systems, because the goal isn't to see if you can detect PowerShell. The goal is to actually see if you can detect beacons that are leaving the environment or connections that are leaving your environment that are within white noise. So that would be something in your lab, get an exception and just create it, so. Okay, and then Eric says, would we be able to download some of the VM files to get our own lab started? Uh, absolutely not. And the main reason is because they're Microsoft Windows operating systems. Um, however, Microsoft Windows does offer trial versions of their operating systems. So there's an amazing website, Microsoft Evaluation Center. You can actually download a whole bunch of different types of Microsoft products from your operating systems on the desktop all the way up to servers. So it's a great place where you can get VMs. And I think that they're live. I can't remember. I think it changes from VM to VM, but I think that they're live for at least 60 to 90 days, which should okay. be enough time to actually go through and test some things. Okay. So, so hopefully that answers your question on where to get those. And Mattia says, what if you use some file list PowerShell payload loaded in memory? So that's kind of getting into endpoint security bypass, which is cool, by the way, we, we love that topic and sacred cash cow tipping, we will absolutely be getting into that. I mean, this particular one, I wanted to focus on the network first because that's kind of what I've been working on. So it aligns with what I've been doing at my job at Active Countermeasures and Black Hills Information Security for the past few weeks. The evasion stuff with doing direct memory injection, oh, 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 we've got stuff for that. Oh, that's coming up, trust me. In fact, watch Marcello or Byte Bleeder. He's gonna be presenting at DerbyCon next week and he's going to be releasing a really cool framework that'll be right in line with your interests. So check that out at DerbyCon. All right, let's move on. So goals and objectives. So whenever you're working with malware in a lab, number one, don't get lost in the weeds. And what I mean by getting lost in the weeds is it's not about understanding how a specific sample of malware works in a very specific context. It's all about testing the various defenses within your organization. So we were just talking about endpoint direct memory injection using PowerShell, absolutely. We will be talking about that in sacred cash cow tipping. This year's sacred cash cow tipping is gonna be a bit different. It's gonna be more about how you can set up your own sandbox and analysis lab but it is gonna be wicked, wicked, wicked cool. So it's gonna be coming up. Testing IDS, IPS, and user behavioral and entity analytics. So when we're going back to the MITRE attack techniques matrix, we shouldn't be trying to find specific malware that was used by APT28 or APT52 or APT-21064111148, whatever. You wanna be able to say, okay, what were the techniques that were used? And can we actually replicate those techniques in our lab? And that's what you should be testing as well. Now, I had a little star up above. It said it's not about testing specific malware samples unless you were trying to recreate theories about specific malware. So let me give you an example. If you're working an incident and you believe that malware did X, Y, and Z based on the evidence that was created, one of the things I would recommend as an incident responder, especially if it's a case that might get the FBI, Secret Service, US Marshals, or some other law enforcement agency involved, is try to recreate the malware in have it do the activities that you thought the malware did in the incident. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first main reason is it's gonna actually validate your theories. If you have a scientific theory, you're going to test that scientific theory. The other thing that it's going to do 
is when you're looking at the malware and what it does, and if you ever go to court and you're somebody that said, I had a test, I was going to test that theory, and it came out and it was accurate, it actually generates a tremendously greater amount of weight in what you have to say. And also management, number management, people like that will resonate with it. So we need to start looking at categories of functionality and tactics instead of specific case studies. Now, there's a lot of case studies that my testers are throwing at me, and I'm gonna walk through those here in a second and kind of go beginning to end just so you can see my overall process and what I'm doing. But I'm doing that because they're articulating specific types of things that malware does to see if I can actually find it in the environment. And that's fun. So watching malware, as I said over here, I've got malware that's actually just running in my environment and just kind of doing what it does. And that's great. And making sure that it runs. And the reason why I need to make sure that it's running is I had my malware stop working last week. I was running malware I think it was Friday. I started with Derek. He got me the beacon malware. I fired up the beacon malware and then it started running in my lab. Then I had to take off and I got to Vegas in the system. There was no malware at all running. And in fact, the entire VM had been, it looked like it had been purged of malware. Well, what it was is the malware worked on the system and it worked on the system, I think for like an hour and a half. And then Windows Defender, which is kind of like the base level antivirus, basically Shut after it, it was running for an hour, it's like, you've had enough fun and just killed it, <laughs> which was really annoying. So it's important to kind of make sure that your malware is working properly. And I'll talk more about this later when we talk about pulling down malware samples to do analysis on. So yeah, the BHIS testers hate me. They're constantly creating malware and they're throwing it at, at me and they're like, here, see if you can detect this. And that's great. So there's lots and lots of custom malware because that's what the testers do. They create malware and they love that. There's also off the shelf malware that you can get like Cobalt Strike, you can pull down some of that. Of course, Metasploit does a great idea and you don't have to be a tester to generate malware. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Victor says, so is the malware running on the host and Rita is monitoring the network for traffic generated That is by correct, the absolutely. So it's running on one of the hosts out of the 19 that's generating noise and then I'm going through and pulling out the signal out of that noise. So there's lots of tools that make this easy. Uh, Metasploit, there's lots of usage examples for Metasploit. There's also tools, commercial tools like Cobalt Strike, which I can't recommend enough. It's just a fantastic tool. We love Cobalt Strike. That makes generating that malware super, super simple. And the cool thing is about Cobalt Strike is, and even PowerShell Empire, is you can take the malware and you can tweak it to try to change its default profile behavior which is just great for expediting the entire process. So let's run through Joff. So Joff has been working on a backdoor for a while called Molerat. Um, Maddie says, do you guys write malware in C? I'd love to do that. Just yesterday, I started understanding buffer overflows. Oh, cool. Like that, moving into buffer overflows. Yes, a lot of the malware that we're writing is actually written in C Sharp these days, and there's offensive C Sharp classes out there. And once again, check and see what Marcello is going to be releasing at DerbyCon. It'll be awesome. And Joff does a lot of his malware development in C, as does Egypt and Matt Toussaint. So yes, we absolutely do see a lot of malware that's shit written in Rossi. So I'm going to go Rita, show databases. So these are the databases that I currently have in Rita right now. And you can see that our demo just made it in as well. So we'll be looking not at that one. We'll look at a slightly different database here in just a few moments. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you kind of whenever I'm trying to analyze malware and figure out what's going on in my environment, how I actually deal with that. So I'm going to take Molerat. We're going to start with Joff's malware and I'm going to do Rita and then I'm going to do show beacons and then I'm going to put in the name of the database. All right. 
And now it's going to dump all the beacons of all the connections of all the things in the database associated with MoleRat. Now, this format may look really, really super ugly, but it's really not. I'm going to show you a trick here in a couple of seconds. I'm going to copy this real fast. So we'll do copy. And the other thing that you can do if you're curious what the different header fields are, it tells you what the header fields are up top. Yes, the command was read a show dash beacons. Yep, and I can put that beacons, back up. Not bacons. Not bacons, which we should have a cross-reference. Ah, <laughs> oh, bacon. Read and you can also do human readable format, which is where it will try to put it in columns. And I, I kicked up my font so it's easier to see, but at the top, it'll try to break things up and make it a little bit easier to analyze the data and tell you what each of the columns do. Now, the other thing that we can do is so as security professionals, data. so much data, it's so tasty. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is it being done, but I wanna show you what I did to get to this point. So basically what I did is I just pasted the data directly from Rita in this CSV format up here, and I pasted it into an Excel spreadsheet onto, well, not Excel spreadsheet, I pasted it into a Google sheet. And now it allows me to do some really cool sorting. So now I can do data and I can do sort, and I can specify the data as a header row. And then I can sort it by connections and basically go from like high to low. So here you can see that this particular IP address had a beacon score, which is nice. And it also was going to the specific destination. And there were 72,243 connections. Now I can go to something like IP void and I can do analysis on that specific IP address and figure out where it's at. And in this situation, it's going to come back here in a moment, and it's going to say that it's DigitalOcean, which is cool. So that would be something that I wouldn't expect in my environment. I would need to investigate further. And there's also other connections, large connection counts. This one right here is an RFC 1918 internal IP address. So I just delete that row. That's an internal to internal that showed up. And then the connection count drops off. So it's just a way to start, right? So whenever you're doing beaconing analysis with Rita, it's not necessarily saying beacons are always going to be malware and that all the beacons with the highest score are malware. We have to do some additional analysis to try to identify that. And by the way, I've got a completed sheet right here. So you can see I've got my internal and then I've highlighted my, my beacon in red up above. So pretty neat, uh, just a quick way of like how I deal with Rita in doing that analysis. Okay, so let's go to Derek. Now, Derek did something really, really interesting. Not to say that what Joff did wasn't interesting, but Joff was playing around with creating custom malware, and he actually changed up the profile a lot to get a really low beacon score. Now, this one is really, really interesting. This is um, another backdoor. It's using Cobalt Strike, but it's bouncing it through a CDN. Specifically, it's using domain fronting. So domain fronting is where in the HTTP header, you can say you're going to Amazon and then from Amazon down below, right below it, you can say host and then they'll actually forward that traffic. So it's a way of kind of splitting your traffic and hiding your true endpoint that you're trying to go to. So he set up domain fronting, which by the way, Amazon and Google have said that they're not gonna support domain fronting, but we're still finding out that there's still what? a lot of domain fronting abilities. Yeah, they, they said that they were gonna shut it down. Um, but it's still lots of opportunities for uh, pen testers. reasons to have domain fronting. There are. It's a little bit wonky, but no, it's oftentimes used by malware. And I'll show you what that looks like here in just a couple of seconds. So if I kick this out, once again, I've got human readable format. And if I shut that down, I've got my CSV output. 
And it's a lot of data, folks. It's a lot of data in the connection tables. And I already went through the steps of pulling in the uh, data here for the CDN that's being used. And I want to kind of explain, if we take this data, and Derek's data is different than jobs, you can still see that if we have a beacon score and we have a large number of connections, there's some weird shenanigans going on here. And what this data was, whenever I started researching it, is this is all DNS traffic. So this is all these systems trying to do resolution. I had to do additional analysis on these computer systems to find out what they were doing. And there was a lot of security products that were doing DNS resolution. And quickly finding out the DNS resolution and network time protocol generates a lot of beacon traffic that isn't necessarily malware. So these are ones that I did initial analysis, but after I got past the DNS traffic right down here, I found Joff's backdoor and Joff turned down the amount of beacons on his backdoor to try to slip underneath that radar. And he really did. It wasn't generating 72,000 connections. It was only generating 1,425 connections throughout the course of the day, which I thought was really, really cool. And that's getting to the kind of the base level. If you're trying to create a backdoor in an implant in an environment, when you're setting up the beaconing threshold, you can set a beacon to an hour and I'm not going to catch it. I'm not going to catch it with Rita. Most likely it's not going to get caught in an organization, but it makes that utility of that backdoor pretty broken. If it's only beaconing once per hour or once per day. Not very much information very fast. It is. Yeah. So what we want, absolutely. We want to be able to get that information out of an environment a lot faster, kind of a smash and grab operation. So if we go to IP void and we do another IP address lookup here, and we do analysis on this, this is the one that Derek was using. And you can actually see this, notice that 155 right here. Oh, we switched, it's now 1111. But earlier today, the back door was actually going to 155. And that's another thing with CDNs, you're gonna see the IP addresses shift over time. It's not shifting quickly, but it's actually shifting slowly over time. So if I went far enough up here, eventually you would see like 155 show up. And you can see that this is CloudFront. So yeah, we can actually see that Amazon CloudFront instance where the system was going to CloudFront and then it was getting set up to Derek's server. So that was cool. I mean, for me, I, I like that stuff, trying to see the malware and kind of learning what that malware actually does. Now, you would totally see things like CloudFront being used, but more often than not, you're not gonna see 1400 connections being sent to that specific IP address. And those IP addresses do tend to shift over time. It won't be quick, but it's gonna shift for a while and then it's gonna shift. And it's usually like a DNS shift at that point for load balancing. So let me go back to my slides. So things that I'm learning when I'm looking at this is it's becoming really, really, really important for anybody that's in computer security to develop a really firm understanding of what normal traffic looks like. DNS and NTP generate a tremendous amount of uh, beacon noise. Uh, they just do. Also domain fronting sucks. And if you're wondering how you detect domain fronting, what I just showed you is kind of how we can do that. We correlate out the beaconing, the total number of traffic connections, and then basically do some research on that as well. You can't just hold to just beaconing. So there's no way you can just say, well, beaconing is gonna detect all the malware in the environment. It's just not because there's a lot of legitimate stuff that's going to do that. But by doing cross-referencing, by doing the full cross-reference and looking at like connection count and beaconing, you really come up with a better view of what's going on. So it's gonna take analysis in three, four different things. So like DNS beacon, you may have a lot of beaconing traffic that's DNS, but then you need to cross-reference that with an exploded DNS view that Rita provides as well.
So when an attacker knows there's something watching connections, they get crafty. And they're very, very, very good at bypassing a lot of the security technologies that are out there. And I don't want to say, hey, we can always detect that. I think the main reason why I wanted to do this webcast was to walk through and show people, yes, there are very, very, very crafty backdoors. You can actually detect them, but it requires a little bit of elbow grease, throwing things into Excel spreadsheets, doing some sorting, and trying to do some initial analysis in a way that makes it easier for you to sort through that data. But it does involve copying and pasting, throwing a spreadsheet, doing analysis over time, which is somewhat of a pain in the butt. Now, crypto. This was fun. So with the last few hunt team gigs I did, I found a lot of crypto <laughs> environments and wanted to have a quick note on angering small children. So I got this video game machine off of Amazon. It has an NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1070. And I just bought it. It was like $1,400 or something like that. And yeah, so I got it because I'm doing crypto analysis and I'm getting into right. blockchain and that's something <laughs> we're doing. So it's a business expense. So Logan comes in and Landon, they both come in at the same time and they see we're out again. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, no. I, so I, Logan and Landon. They uh. see this and it's like bright and shiny and Logan comes in and he's like, Hey, does that have a good video card? I'm like, does it have a good video card? It has a fantastic video card. You shouldn't have told him it's that. It's the industry standard <laughs> video card. He's like licking his lips. He's like, can I uh, play uh, Fortnite on that? Oh. And I'm like, no, uh, it has an amazing video card, but you cannot play Fortnite on this computer system at all. So there's a little bit of tension, strand household about this, right? But, you know, making fun of my son, sure, that that's kind of funny, but we also have come across environments where systems administrators have somehow convinced the organization that their new desktop server or desktop build needs like a high-end video card in it. It's like, well, yes, it does need a GeForce GTX 1070 uh, to run Excel properly in this environment. So they'll get these workstations and servers in their environment, and they'll just start mining crypto at night and having all the cryptocurrency get mined up to their wallet. And the one that I've seen a lot is actually the easiest to use. It's one called NiceHash. And I thought I would play around with NiceHash and see if NiceHash actually beaconed. And it turns out, no, it does not beacon at all, which I thought everything was broken in my lab when I was trying to find beacons for the specific IP address that was running NiceHash. But then I realized, let me go over here to Rita Crypto and I'll show you the file output. So if you go Rita show, this will list our databases. So this is a crypto one. You can go Rita show long connections. And then I put in the database for the capture that I did. And if I look at my long connection and let me give it a minus capital H at the beginning. And there we go. So we've got source, uh, source port, destination IP address and destination port. And this duration is over 26 hours. So it's interesting that this particular crypto miner doesn't beacon at all. It just makes that connection, just leaves that connection up yeah. and running. And a couple of the other crypto miners that I'm looking at, I've noticed that they do something very, very similar. But in addition to that, I found one where all of the information, including like the wallet identification is being sent clear text. What? So there's, yeah, right. Well, it, it's not written by security people, they're crypto miners, right? So there's no SSL involved in that at all. So I thought that that was really interesting that we saw like this connection, not in this situation, this one actually used SSL, that actually nailed the connection. And yes, you can use Rita to detect those really long connections in your environment. And if you look, there is a lot of long connections that show up. Nothing really is approaching 107 
107,000 milliseconds. It's just, or 107 seconds, 107,000 seconds. You see a pretty steep drop off from that point going down. And also we have uh, broadcast traffic that's being sent out as well. So it's another way that you can kind of identify some back doors and some weird things going on in your environment as well, which I think is pretty neat. So lessons learned, easiest way to bypass beacon detection, don't beacon. And some versions of Metasploit Meterpreter do something very similar. They'll just establish an SSL session and they'll keep that session up and running. So it doesn't show up really clean in beaconing analysis. Okay, we have a couple questions. Yeah. Do we have time? Yeah, we got time. I got like two slides left, so we're doing great. Okay, could one set up multiple beacons sent by backdoor to multiple CC, each at slow pace when combined equally still useful? You can, and if you're going to do that, the protocols you would use would be quick, Q-U-I-C, and SCTP would be your preferred protocols for a couple of reasons. One, it does that type of load balancing. Two, um, there are also protocols that are not visible by many security products. So you need to make sure that those particular protocols are disabled, uh, leaving your environment. But yes, you can actually do that. In fact, the uh, Chinese camera, IP camera that we detected, um, it actually did something very similar. Uh, so what it did is it was an internal system that beaconed out, I think, to 10 IP addresses in oh, China wow. and Guangzhou, and it load balanced across the 10, which was okay, right? But over the aggregate, over like, you know, 48 hours or so, it had the exact same beacon profile for every single one of them. So it did still show up on beacons. It's not one IP address. You can actually sort by, uh, sorry, an external IP address. You can actually sort by internal IP address and see how many internal beacons you have. So let me kind of walk through that. So the question is, how do you detect backdoors that are streaming to multiple different endpoints on the internet? You source it by the internal IP address, see how many beacon scores or how many beacon hits for an internal IP address. The ones that have the most beacon scores on the inside of the environment, RFC 1918 IP addresses, are the ones that you want to look at for those. All right, we got that done. Okay. All right. Whew. Keep those questions going. Uh, I want to get through the slides and then we can just do questions. Okay. Um, also, if you want to get malware, someone asked this at the beginning, you can use Lenny Zelster's awesome website, Malware Sample Sources. And uh, there's all kinds of wonderful websites where you can go and download malware. I will warn you, having played with a lot of these malware specimens, a bunch of them don't work. Um, so if you run them, like the C2 server is gone, they don't actually generate malware as much as you'd like. Uh, so try to find some of the newest ones and try to run those because a lot of their servers that they talk to aren't there and the malware is just defunct. It doesn't work. Not all of them, but a lot of them just don't work very well. Finally, coming up, Sierra, we've got sacred cash cow tipping. In, in January. In January, but it's coming up. Okay. Yep. Is bro a requirement for Rita or can it consume other logs? Yes, it can. Um, shortly. Yeah. <laughs> We're currently testing it right now. But uh, if you go to one of the branches of Rita, one of the dev branches, uh, Logan and Bill Stearns have been working on a version of Rita that consumes NetFlow and IPFix. And by the way, does anybody here want to have a really, really cheap way to get NetFlow and IPFix? Anybody yes. interested in that? Dirt cheap? Uh, probably they are, yes. I'm going to say yes. Yes, they are. Yes, they okay, are. Cool. Yes, so many, yes. Here we go. So Microtik has IPFix capability built into it. So if we could look at Microtik IPFix, they've got full traffic flow analysis. And these little routers are like, I'm not joking, they're like $50. And you can go through and it has a full GUI where you can actually uh, do that full analysis right from the Microtik GUI itself. You can actually set the configuration. So yes, Microtik, little Microtik routers do support IPFix and they're like 50 bucks. So go get one of those. 
And yes, we will talk about that in a later webcast with Rita supporting IPFIX. Okay, one more question. What processes do you guys recommend to use to automate parsing of blogs with Rita in this sort of an architecture? Assuming you have no SIM and you are in a Soho context, what would be the best practice? So I got a question. I can talk about that. I want to be very careful because I'm trying to keep a delineation between free tools like Rita, which is free. And like, notice we didn't talk about AI Hunter. We did not. And, and but you should check it out. So if you're interested, if you go to projects, you can pull down Rita. Rita is free. You can download it here. See you guys in a couple of weeks. We have another webcast from, I think our next one is Matt. And then we'll be at Wild West Hackenfest. So hopefully you guys will see us there. Sorry for the audio. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love if you could leave us a review wherever you're listening. If you have other questions or comments, we'd also love to hear from you. You can email me at sierra at bhis.co. Thanks. Also, Derek, John. Derek wants to do an entire webcast. Uh, Derek Banks wants to do a webcast on creating Cuckoo Sandbox, multiple different AV engines on separate systems, all with a shared folder, all executing in parallel with each other. This is another really important <laughs> webcast, John.